This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm the rabbi's husband, Mark Gerson, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today, I am delighted to be joined by my great friend, Congressman Max Rose. Max Rose, a Democrat, is a congressman who represents New York's 11th district, which encompasses Staten Island and South Brooklyn. A graduate of Wesleyan University and the London School of Economics, Congressman Rose joined the U.S. Army in 2010. He served five years of active duty and was wounded in Afghanistan when his vehicle hit an IED. After completing Ranger School, he earned the Ranger Tab, the Combat Infantryman Badge, a Bronze Star, and a Purple Heart. He is still in the National Guard and recently served during the corona outbreak in New York. He was elected to Congress in 2018 winning by almost 12 points in a district that Donald Trump had won two years previously by 12 points himself. So, uh, Max, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, it's it's good to be with you. I'm honored to be the friend of The Rabbi's Husband. (laughs) Yes, well, Congressman, um, of everything in the Bible, the passage that you chose to discuss is, I believe, your bar mitzvah portion. No, it's actually going to be the uh, my son's bar mitzvah portion. Oh, your son's bar mitzvah. Your son's uh, bar, your, your your son's bar mitzvah portion. Your son, who is how old now? Four months. And you know his bar mitzvah already. Yeah, right. <laughs> this will be his this, wow. his portion uh, when he wow. is bar mitzvah. So I thought that amidst like all that. of this chaos, this tumultuous moment that we're in as a nation and as a world, it would be a great opportunity to look forward to something quite joyful years from now. My wife and I adopted Miles four months ago, five months ago or so. Um, we're, we're just overjoyed. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Beautiful. Well, God willing, in 13 years, uh, we'll all be there celebrating Miles, uh, Miles Bar Mitzvah. And, and he, I, I think we have to give this to Miles when he's able to listen and understand some things. We have to get, this is probably the first discussion of his specific Bar Mitzvah portion referencing him, right? Probably never been done before. Never been done before. Never been done before. God willing, we'll give this to Miles in a few years. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about the golden calf. Max, uh, tell us what happened at the golden calf. And this is for those of you with your Bibles in front of you, Exodus 32. Yeah. So it it is as the Jews are leaving, have escaped Egypt uh, or are escaping Egypt, a story that we all know. Moses is descending up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And he is not coming back down. He's communicating with God. And at this point, his followers, his people, the Jews, the tribes down below Mount Sinai, and for those, I, I've been to Mount Sinai before. For those who haven't, it, it's an incredibly steep mountain. Huh. They become quite nervous and they, they say, We need a God. And they abandon God and turn to abandon Moses and turn to Moses' brother. Moses' brother then melts down all their gold and builds the golden calf and says, this is your God. This is why you escaped bondage. Pray to the calf. And they subsequently do so. And then comes a moment that I think is actually the most fascinating part of this Torah portion, which is the communications between Moses and God. And Moses says, I, I'm going to spite down these people. Uh, you, we'll, we'll give all the power to, to your descendants going forward. Moses subsequently speaks truth to power. 
Moses subsequently pushes down, pushes back upon God using God's own words. Exactly. And convinces God not to do that. Not to do that. And, and it speaks to just one of, one of the, I think, the most amazing things about Judaism, which is referring to truth, re- re- referring to fact, referring to morality so as to treat, uh, speak truth to power. And it's one thing that I hope that we can discuss today. And thank you so much again for giving me this opportunity. No, and, and what a terrific passage you chose. So let's talk about both Moses's leadership and the example that he sets and also Aaron's leadership or lack of leadership. So Aaron, as, exa- as you said, so Moses is late. Moses is probably a day late coming down the mountain. And the people, what we, in, in terms we would use freak out, they're, they're wondering, where is Moses? And they don't respond patiently. They don't ask Aaron instead. They decide to rise up and make for us gods that will go before us. And then, interestingly, Aaron, as the leader in place of Moses, Aaron being Moses' older brother, but the guy on the ground who's taking Moses' place with Moses on the mountain, Aaron says, remove the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me, showing it was only the men who were misbehaving, because it doesn't say the ears of your husbands or the, the, the rings on your husbands. So it's, he tells these men... He tells these men, go tell your wives and your kids to give us their jewelry, assuming probably that they're not going to give them the jewelry and they can avoid this whole situation. So Aaron does not stand in front of the people and tell them what they're doing is wrong. Well, I'm going to push back on you a little bit, Mark. Great. Because I think that it's very easy. Hindsight is 2020 when it comes to evaluating leadership. And it's one of the biggest problems when we as a society evaluate leaders that we don't put ourselves in their shoes. Think about where he is at that one moment. They have put all of their stock, all of their hopes and their dreams in not only Moses, but also monotheism, also this new vision. And suddenly it is crashing down upon them. it, It looks like it wasn't true. It looks like they have been abandoned. And here Aaron is with incredibly angry, incredibly upset people. Absolutely. Incredibly nervous, and most importantly, incredibly scared people. And right. what does he do? Well, one could also argue he bought some time. One, he, one, he, one, he one could also argue that for this one moment, he was able to pacify this group, maintain solidarity, maintain unity out of potentially faith in his brother, out of potentially faith in the vision, and most importantly, out of faith in God, that God would have compassion and sympathy and that God would forgive him for what they were doing. Imagine if he had not done any of that. What could have happened? Well, okay. Well, let's take the example of you. you, You've commanded uh, men and women in battle for many years, and now you're a leader in Congress. If you see, or perhaps you saw, colleagues, people who work for you, men and women who served under you, whatever. If you as a leader see people doing something that you don't think is right, would you do what Aaron did and try to be clever and to, I read it like Aaron tried to trick them into doing the right thing. He never stands up and says, what you're doing is wrong. Moses will be down in a day. God is our God. He's the only one God. We're not worshiping idols. It's strictly prohibited for all kinds of reasons. So just stop. Instead, Aaron tries to trick them. He doesn't confront them directly and tell them what they're doing is wrong. And his trickery fails because much to his seeming surprise, the wives and the children give their gold and the men come back the next day with tons of gold, They enough gold to create a golden calf. They create it and then seemingly have an orgy at it. 
just by reading the language of the text. Who knew? Oh, yeah. No, that's, that stuff's all over. Yeah. I, I like to believe that I have and I would do the right thing. But what I think that we often do, in it, and we don't teach leadership enough to young people. We don't teach, we, we don't, it's actually, especially in modern day liberal New York culture, it, it's actually, people are against teaching about leaders, right? They're, everything has to be larger forces. They don't want to think about the individual. And what we cannot do, though, in our conversations about leaders is establish caricatures. And so as we look back at this story, yes, 100%, I like to think that I would stand up. I like to think I have stood up and said, no, now is when we do the hard thing. Now is when we have faith. Now is when we dig deep. But you are still dealing with human beings. That's right. You, and, and these were folks that were scared. You know, it, it, this story has been spoken about in conversations just like this so much. And often the conversation and the analysis focuses on Moses and his communication with God, and it focuses on Aaron's failures. It very, it very rarely focuses on the masses. That's right. What they were feeling, what they were thinking, and how much they were pushing back. And that, that when what we're seeing that today too, is that is the hardest thing to do in leadership is to stand up and feel alone, put everything on the line and try to speak truthfully. Now, Aaron, in many ways, did not do that, right? But there were right. some ways that I actually do believe that he might have in this one moment, that he might have stood, that, that the, this, this can all be interpreted as him also standing up and saying, for a brief moment, let's stay here. Let's maintain solidarity. Let's still believe that there that, that Moses may come down. And it, it's tough. Like I'm walking a very fine line here, and maybe I'm being too contrarian. But I, I just very don't. I don't want to lose faith that somehow Aaron just abandoned everything that he had believed in. I'm I'm naturally an optimistic person, right? I'm naturally right. a believer in the goodness of humans. And I have to believe that, 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 that there must have been something that he was trying to do here. So what, what I read is that Aaron and Aaron is known in, in the Torah and in subsequent teachings as being the great man of peace. And all great strengths have a flip side of being weaknesses. And some weaknesses have a flip side of being strengths. And the weakness in being the man of peace was that he couldn't stand up and deliver the hard, difficult, courageous truth at the moment it needed to be told. But, but you're right. As, as Maimonides said, the Torah speaks in the language of man. And Aaron had all these fearful, insecure people who felt abandoned by Moses. And who among us knows what we would do if we were in Aaron's position? Right, right. And, and who amongst us knows what would have happened if Aaron had? They may have killed him. They may have killed him. Who knows? They could have gone to war with one another. They could have Absolutely. become now in, in no way, shape or form. Am I advocating that that leadership equates to lying or leadership equates to manipulating or leadership equates to not having the moral fiber? But I do think that if we are going to adequately teach leadership and, and uh, try to embolden others to be leaders and to be strong, then we cannot teach about leaders of, our, of the past as if they are demigods. No, and, and getting back to what you're saying before, that that's that there is, I mean, it's as as w when you try to when you name a child in the Jewish tradition, you think of all the biblical characters, and the first thing you realize is how deeply flawed everybody is. I mean, forget that we don't have a perfect person, 
we don't have anybody without massive flaws. Almost the greater you are, the bigger your flaws are. I mean, we could go on about Moses' flaws, but let's get to what you were saying earlier about one of Moses' great strengths. So Moses smashes the tablets, fascinating story in and of itself, goes back up the mountain, speaks with God. God says, I'm going to get rid of the Jewish people and start over with you. Now, step away. That, to me, is basically an invitation, please argue with me. Because when God says step away, it basically means don't step away, right? And Moses delivers him, as you said, Moses argues with God, and thus sets an example for us Jews today about how we deal with authority, is that all of us, including God, are under principles. And when anyone does not live up to his principles, it's perfectly okay, in fact, morally required to question that person. And that's what Moses does with God. And I love the moral obligation to question authority. I love the moral obligation to push back. And what's also interesting here is that Moses does so using God's own words. Exactly. What he does is he calls God a hypocrite. He says to God, you're not living up to your, your own godly principles. Yes. And, and this, to me, it exudes a few things. One is, is that, first of all, if Moses can do that, there's no excuse for any of us not to do that in our own lives. Moses' example, exactly right. There's zero excuse not to show the courage to speak truth to whatever authority you are facing. Moses takes an extraordinary risk, but he does so with incredible confidence, but not confidence in himself. That's not what's driving this. It is confidence in God. It is confidence that God will not put ego first, will not put arrogance first, but that God will put his own sense of moral clarity, moral consistency, and rightness first. It is almost at this one moment where he he steps forward in this ultimate act of vulnerability. Says, "God, I believe in you more now than ever." And I'm exactly and that, that. That to me is so beautiful. We often interpret this moment where we speak truth to power, when we stand up to authority, as antagonistic to authority. But I, I don't believe that. You know, I've sworn an oath to the Constitution twice in my life. And I, and I think that when one points out the failures of the government, when one stands up and says the government can be better, the state can be better, this country can be better, that is the ultimate sense of optimism and belief in this nation's ability to fulfill its promise, to fulfill its words. Exactly. And Moses does it within the system. He says to God, I want to hold all of us accountable to the principles that we all share and that we all love. And God, God wants to hear it. And the language Moses uses is fascinating. He says to, he says to God, if you destroy the people and start over with me, blot me out of your Torah. There's no more direct um, and unambiguous statement that you could make than say to God, get me out of your Torah. And so Moses' argument is brilliant. He knows God can't get him out of the Torah because the entire Torah from early Exodus depends on Moses. There's no Torah without Moses. And then he says to God, he says another great argument. He says, you brought the Jews out of Egypt to set an example for the world that there's one God who loves and cares for everybody. If the Egyptians hear that the Jews are destroyed a couple months later, what are they going to think? Your entire credibility will be shot. Right. Well, how, how could God disagree with that? Well, no, it, it's a perfectly rational argument that speaks to God's own self-interest. But there's also some aspects exactly. of leadership here uh, demonstrated by Moses that I think are often undercounted. Let's think about what Moses does not do. Moses doesn't throw his people under the bus. He doesn't say, oh, oh God, I'm going to handle them, or that's ridiculous. I told them not to do that. He takes full responsibility, full accountability, says anything that they do, I bear fault for it. You cannot ever separate me from right. my people. 
And on top of that, though, he doesn't ever try to, uh, let's just say, throw someone else under the bus. He takes he the full opposite. ownership. And and I that is you know when I think about the best leaders that I served under in the military, they they always made me feel always that I would never be alone when it came time to a failure. That that it, it, because every failure, one kid, you, you, if you have strong leadership above you, they consider their own failure. They consider the things that they could have done to prevent that from happening. They never throw you under the bus ever. And Moses never does that. Ever. Very interesting. You know, it's, you're so right. And that's so important because in the very beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses is referring to all the places that he's been. And there's one place called, I'm going to get the Hebrew wrong, Dizalabob or something like that. And what that actually means is too much gold. Now, there was never such a place called that and too much gold. What Moses is saying is he's criticizing God. He's saying, how did we get the gold to build the golden calf? Because we got it going out of Egypt. The Egyptians gave it to us. It says it in, in uh, late Exodus. And what Moses is saying to God is too much gold. How much gold do we need in the desert? There's no use for gold in the desert. You gave us too much gold. There is no use for it. So of course they built a golden calf. Moses always defends, exactly as you said, he always defends his people externally and criticizes them internally. So he's their harshest critic when they're alone. But when there's anyone external, including God, he's their fiercest defender. Right. And, that, and what that built is, well, it's interesting. I was going to say that that builds loyalty. But when I, th when I think about some of my moments of actual weakness and some of the moments where I felt lowest, it was when I did everything right. And this is probably, this is a, a, an overall weakness of mine. I think, huh. well, I've done everything right. I've done exactly what Mark, you just said a leader should do. And nonetheless, I still didn't feel or see loyalty from my own people. And Moses, in this one instance, right, had every right to feel abandoned. Every right, as he's Absolutely. standing up there to say, I did everything right. I risked my neck. I never threw you under the bus. I always put you first. And now you do this to me? But it, it, it was even then that Moses didn't falter. Even then that he still expressed solidarity and love and total commitment to his people. And that is probably the most valuable leadership lesson here. But we're, all, we're thinking about this so much as leadership down. Right. You have your people, the, the ones that will report up to you. But what about leading up? You know, what about the ways in which Moses, who's the everyone is a subordinate to God? Moses was a subordinate to God in this instance. Sure. And nonetheless, Moses also shows leadership up. He speaks to his own leader and says, you're better than this. Exactly. That is one of the hardest things to he do. He leads his leader. Exactly right. Exactly. Exactly. And everyone has the opportunity to lead at one point or another in, in, in their lives and trying to instill that in people. This idea that it is not just your expectation. It is not just, does that, does that happen in the military? Operation. Like, did anyone who served under you ever, ever, ever say to you, uh, I don't know what they called you captain or what did they ever say to you? Uh, you're wrong. And, and, and here's a better way to accomplish the mission that we all want to do. Oh, absolutely. And you know, when, when you think about the, the life of an infantry platoon leader, you know, I, when I enlisted in the military, but even by the time I had deployed to Afghanistan, let's take that my first day in Afghanistan, I'd only been in the military for a couple of years, two and a half years or so. And I was leading men and women who this was their fourth, fifth, sixth deployment. And so in so many ways, what you are is you are a manager of experts. 
You are a manager of geniuses. And if you, they are not feeling emboldened and empowered enough to push back on you and to have incredible buy-in, then you're not doing your job. Interestingly enough, God has done that with Moses. He, and, and what was it about God's previous interactions with Moses that made Moses feel as if he should, he has to do this. He has to push back. It is his responsibility to push back. And most importantly, he will not be punished for pushing back. There was some part of Moses that knew that this was not only the morally right thing to do, it was the strategically right thing to do. There was something about their previous interactions that had led Moses to believe that. God educated Moses. He must have educated Moses that that this is the kind of relationship that he wanted and expected. Be- before we conclude, just one one final question, which is actually not related to the Torah text, but a different text. And this is um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. Andre Malraux tells a story. He said, I just I, I ran into somebody with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> you want me to comment on that? Well, I, I want to know what are two things that you've learned? Well, I do want you to comment on that, but I also want to know what are two things that you've learned about mankind in your years in Congress and perhaps as well your years in the military? So the, the first thing that I definitely learned in the military is that humans are incredibly bright and capable. You know, I, we, we cannot understate what we are, we, what, what we have inside of us. I saw men and women come from every corner of the country and display not only mechanical brilliance, not only operational brilliance, but incredible courage, incredible intellectual fortitude, and the opportunity or the capacity to see the entire picture. And these are people that would never have been considered by Harvard University. Well, well, and I, you know, I recently got publicly a bit of a debate with AOC because she had introduced an amendment I to thought. restrict the ability of the military to advertise or recruit on gaming platforms like Twitch. And I said, look, th- this perpetuates this incredibly elitist trope that the only reasons why people will enlist in the military is because they're dumb and got duped. And rather, the, the people that I, and you see this in the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side all the time, this attitude, when in sure. reality, we need to treat public servants such as them, just as we do treat graduates of Harvard. It's fascinating that you bring up Ivy League education, because the notions of status, the notions of who are the elite, I think we have to fundamentally re-envision in the United States of America. So that's the first thing. But, 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 but that's such an interesting, important point. I just want to drill down. And so basically what you're saying is, I think it's so right, is that the people you knew who may never have gone to college at all, where every bit is smart, and you saw that, whether they, whether it was mechanical or operational or tactical or even strategic, every bit is smart and maybe smarter than those who have what society would say are the impromptuors of intelligence, like Harvard degrees. Well, Mark, I, I enlisted after graduating from the London School of Economics. I was the dumbest one in basic training, the dumbest guy. I The only reason why I wow. even got out of basic training is because I was carried through it by people like Ronnie Gunner Rudd. 19 years old from Alabama. So yeah, yeah, no, we we have far too much arrogance in our society today and it's false arrogance. The second thing though that I have learned is it's interesting what humans feel nostalgic for. And they don't feel nostalgic 
as often for moments of luxury and exuberance and gluttony. They feel nostalgic for moments of solidarity and shared struggle. I, I don't know one soldier or not many soldiers who don't in some way, shape or form miss combat. I don't know many people who don't in some way, shape or form miss being a part of a intense campaign. I'm sure you've seen it in people with startups, entrepreneurs, uh, the, 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 idea people who uh, are serving the community in all the, you know, you're, you're, you're a leader in so many great organizations, ways in which the humans are inclined to feel, to miss those moments where they really shared in their sacrifice. And we don't think about humans that way. I have so much optimism about human nature. I have so much optimism and I have so much optimism for the future, not only of this country, but of, of this world. And every experience that I have had speaks to me. Are, are you nostalgic for the military? 100%. It's one of the reasons why that I probably I've stayed in the National Guard. Right. That this idea that when you, you're amongst people who have a higher calling, you're amongst people who have a shared culture and a shared sacrifice, you, there's nostalgia for the simplicity of it all. There's nostalgia for the adrenaline there's n- nostalgia for the sense of living in the moment. And th- th- there, there's, there's also, though, nostalgia for the intellectual aspects of it. Nostalgia for the, for the sense that we, this is something that we never acknowledge, that the, the idea that you are living and participating in the ultimate form of strategy. And so I'm, I'm nostalgic uh, and I miss so much, so much of it. Right. Well, Congressman, thank you for your participation here this morning, but thank you for your service to this country for so many years in so many ways and still at, at such a young age with, God willing, uh, many decades ahead. Thank you, Mark, for your, for your incredible friendship and thank you for doing this. I, I look forward to, uh, to hearing the rabbi's husband's room for, for many years to come. That's right. God willing. You are the God of the brave. If you leave us a friend,